and an honor to have uh, Tony Coles here, uh, CEO of Ionic Pharmaceuticals, one of the leading and, and really actually important uh, biopharmaceutical company, uh, companies in the country. And we have a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, you have a new drug that we should be talking about, we can talk about new therapies. Uh, I'd love to talk about the FDA and, and that whole experience, uh, given what you've just been through. But I thought we'd start on a personal note, um, given your background um, and how you got actually into this industry and your experience with cancer, um, which is now your company's specialty. Um, and maybe you could talk a little about your, your son sure. and your experience uh, with him, because I think just might add a, an interesting dimension uh, to begin this conversation this morning. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. And this mic's a little loud. If we could uh, lower the volume a little bit, oh, that's perfect. So it's uh, it's really interesting. I you know knew I wanted to be a physician from the time I was a kid. Went off to medical school. Uh, thought I was going to be a, a cardiologist, uh, and indeed did my training in cardiology. And thought I was going to be in an academic setting. You know, spend time in the the ivory tower of uh, academia, do research, see patients. And I went off to a public health school. Uh, when I was training, and had one of these, and you've probably had these, I'm, I'm sure most of us had, had one of these lightning rod moments in, in thinking about how I could actually change the world. Really, kind of a simple thing, but one of those reductionist moments when I literally, sitting in a class, came to this notion that there's probably a way to affect change more than just one life at a time, which I loved. I loved patient care. I loved seeing people... Uh, love taking care of them, love having them confide and work with me to get better, but there was something missing about the levers to actually affect change on a broader level. So I thought about going to Capitol Hill and thought about working in the private sector, and Merck Pharmaceuticals called. And we had uh, we had worked with Merck uh, at uh, Mass General, which is where I did all my training. Uh, they funded one of the programs that I was uh, running. It was a minority recruitment effort. They learned about what we were doing and gave us a grant. And about midway through the grant, I got a phone call and Mark said, uh, would you ever come to the pharmaceutical industry? Well, it was just at this time that I was having this moment of how could I actually affect change at a broader level. And I said yes. And it took a, a little while to figure out the right job. But one of the most important things that happened in those months as I was deciding was that I met a, one of the most incredible men uh, in the industry, a guy called Roy Vagelos who was himself a physician, was CEO of Merck at the time, uh, when Merck was in its glory. It had been America's most admired corporation for seven years running, and that was all due to Roy. And Roy took me into his beautiful wood-paneled office on the seventh floor of the, the headquarters in New Jersey, and we sat and we had a conversation about physicians setting out to make a difference in the world. And I listened to his story and learned that it was actually possible. And it was that conversation that interested me in coming to this industry. Let's fast forward and talk a little about your interest, though, in cancer. Your son, sadly, but happily now, is 25 years old, cancer survivor. Yeah. No, so that was, it, so I'd been in the industry for 10 years, uh, big pharmaceutical company experience, which, which informs what I do today. And been doing this for 10 years, and our, uh, our son, my wife Robin's here uh, with me, our, our oldest son, Andrew, uh, developed Good arm, arm pain. There you go. I developed arm pain, and he was playing baseball. We thought it was a typical teenager. Uh, you know, didn't know what to make of it. 
And three months later, he had a protruding sternum, which worried me. I noticed it, and I thought, well, we've got to get him evaluated. Turns out that he developed a variety of symptoms, and we were rushed to Memorial Sloan Kettering the, the day after he had a CT scan, which showed he had a huge mass in his chest. And there are all sorts of stories to tell around the, the interactions and what happened in the house that night before we went and all of those things. But to, to make a long story very short, once we received the diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, our world changed. It just, as you can imagine, anyone who receives this kind of you know, information about a loved one or a family member. And he started chemotherapy, had a great uh, effect, went into remission, and six months later relapsed with an even more virulent form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and required a bone marrow transplant. Neither of us were matches, nor were his siblings, and so we went on this hunt across, across the country to try to identify a donor. We eventually found one, a, a lovely young woman from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, and that's another story, but it was all about her reluctance and this urging she felt to just donate and to sign up for the registry, which is ultimately what saved Andrew's life. He's now 25 and living in L.A. and, and working and has finished college. Uh, but that experience of the long list of things it taught us gave me insight into what I do today. So I went... <clears throat> He had one round of chemotherapy, came home, his white blood counts fell, which is typically what happens with this kind of chemotherapy. And I had a, held a vial of um, GCSF, which is granulocyte colony stimulating factor. It improves the white blood count. Literally standing in the kitchen at our home in Princeton, open the refrigerator, take the vial out, and I stopped, recognizing that this vial which came from this great industry, would help save his life. And that changed my perspective about this industry forever. I, it was an intellectual exercise up until that point. I loved what I did. It was terrific fun. It was great fun marketing and educating physicians. But then it was personal. And then, at that moment, I thought, not only can we change lives, but we can actually save them. Let me ask you, there, there seems to be a, a great disconnect in this country around the pharmaceutical industry. There is this sense of hope and promise, which you have just articulated very well, and also a remarkable sense of frustration about the cost, about the process, uh, about so many components of the business. And I, I'm curious how you sort of square that circle these days. Well, let's, let's pick up the story that we just finished mm -hmm. with, with Andrew. I would have paid any amount of money, right? We were comfortable but not wealthy, but I would have paid any amount of money, including selling our home if it meant the, saving the life of our son. And I long, I've long held that anyone who makes a decision in healthcare should have an up-close and personal experience because then you'll really realize that there's no value that you can put on a life. You know, we can have a debate about hours or days of extending life versus weeks or months versus years, and, and, and we can have that conversation. But when you're sitting at that moment, there's almost no price that you would pay. And this is a business. This is a business that focuses on return on investment. And what very few, I think, well, we do a poor job in this industry mm -hmm. of helping people understand that it takes from idea conception 
to therapy on the market 10 to 12 years, 10 to 12 years. Nothing else in, in the business world takes that long usually. Maybe the making of a movie. Your newest drug cost a billion dollars. The newest drug, the newest drug has cost almost a billion dollars. And on average, that one billion dollars, and you don't actually know that you have something that will be approved at the very end. You, you assume all of this risk, and you're well into the spending. You've probably spent three quarters of a billion dollars before you have a sense that this could actually make it to market. There are very few other business models where you have that kind of risk and that enormous capital outlay. Let me ask you about the payoff, though. So you have this new drug, uh, Kyprolis. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's it, Kyprolis. Kyprolis. Uh, should be, or we think it's going to be approved officially by the FDA at the end of this month? We will, we will. The decision date from the FDA is July 27th. July 27th. But it has already, the advisory committee has already... The advisory uh, committee took place 10 days or so ago, and it received a unanimous vote, 11 to Explain to the audience what the drug is first, and then I'll... I'll good, can. good. Uh, this is a drug for a uh, type of blood cancer for multiple myeloma, which is unfortunately uniformly fatal. Uh, many of us have probably had loved ones or relatives who've had multiple myeloma. Happens to about uh, 20,000 Americans uh, as new cases each year. The problem with myeloma is that it's not curable. It's uniformly fatal. And at the end of the 1990s, so 10, 12 years or so ago, the mortality rate for myeloma was about two years following diagnosis. Nearly everyone died within two years of their diagnosis. Today, people are living eight to 10 years with their diagnosis, and it's all because of therapies that have come onto the market since that time. So our goal is to actually make multiple myeloma a chronic disease, very much like what we've done with hypertension and diabetes, even HIV AIDS, which if you think about what happened with the HIV AIDS crisis in the beginning of the 90s, where literally everyone was dying from HIV AIDS, today it's become a chronic disease. So that's our goal with multiple myeloma, and Kyprolis actually goes right to the heart of the cause of myeloma and actually treats it and has some really remarkable data on survival. Extends life by how long? It extends life in the sickest of the sick patients. So these are patients who've exhausted all possibilities. Right? So mm -hmm. there are, well, they're in this trial, they all received a median of about 13 therapies. I didn't even know there were 13 therapies to treat myeloma, but they had all received about 13 therapies. And if you look at the survival in the population with the currently available therapies, most of those patients unfortunately die within six to eight months. With our therapy, they're living as long as 15 to 16 months, almost double the amount of time. Now, that's not days and hours, that's not weeks, that's months. Okay, but so here's the public policy question. How, well, let's go back. How much is this going to cost So we to don't, extend life for, the, for that amount of time, which is not trivial? So we don't know yet. We're waiting for the final approval to make the determination of what the cost will be. But there what are, are the competitor products for treatment of that? There are length. other therapies what that, are they that are on the market that on a monthly basis cost about seven to $8,000 on a monthly basis. I'm assuming you probably can charge more. Well, we'll uh, we're we're evaluating what we want to want to, what we want to do in that circumstance, and uh, we have not made the final decision yet. But I think if you're talking about a therapy that that provides hope and extension of life for patients who really have no alternative, I don't know how you put a price on that. It's it's the story. Of that's the but that's the big question right now. People talk about end of life care all the time, and the 
the, the burden, some people would suggest, that it is put on the system. Mm. How do you think about that issue? How do you think about the costs related to end of life, um, related to the utility of life, and related to uh, quality of life? So let me, let me share another story with you, okay. because as you, as you can imagine, my, uh, my life and my job are filled with stories from patients. One of the things we do at Onyx is every two months we invite a patient to come in and speak to the employees. And we had a patient come in in, in February, a patient I met at uh, an investment conference, a banking conference. I'd finished a presentation on the stage just like this, had stepped off the stage, and this uh, very tall, very, very, very uh, nice guy walks up and he says, Tony, I, I, I just wanted to meet you. And I wanted to tell you thank you. Because I take Kyprolis. I'm the father of six kids. And it is keeping me alive. Well, you can imagine what that did he's to me part of the in study. that moment. He was part, he's not actually part of a study. He's being treated at a myeloma center in Arkansas okay. that, is, uh, that is running a small set of studies at mm -hmm. that center uh, using Kyprolis. But you can imagine what that right. did in that particular moment. And that's actually how I led the conversation with 150 investors from Wall Street. So we're always talking about return on investment and earnings per share, and we're talking about R&D right. spending. But there was nothing to do in that moment but start my conversation with Wall Street with that anecdote because that's the most poignant and the most powerful. So as I, we invited him to come in, speak to our employees, and as I learned more about his story, he was failing in July of 2011. Literally had given up hope and was dying. And in August of 2011 was put on this therapy. And we all have, physicians always have these Lazarus stories, if mm -hmm. you will, patients who are rescued suddenly. But what was most compelling was that this guy, the father of six young kids, has to date been given an additional year of life. And I don't know how you put a price on that. I, I just don't know. I know that the, the United Kingdom mm -hmm. uh, attempts to do that right. with, with a lot of the approaches that they have in place. But I don't know how we in this country, with the ethos we have around health, the extension of life and the access to health, how we put a price on that. It's an important conversation and we have to have it. But how do you start that conversation? Well, no, but I'm curious. How, how do you start that conversation? How do you think in, in the context of a world where most Americans are taking more from the system than they're putting into the system. How do you actually come up with a system that makes sense, that works? So let's have the ethos conversation. Okay. Let's have the ethos conversation. And I'm talking just economics. I'm not talking the moral argument. No, no, no. Right. But, but, but see, they're, they're intertwined, right? You, we can't disconnect the ethos of the right to health and the right to health care and the access to health which we consider a God-given right in this country. Mm -hmm. And we can't separate that from everything that's happening in my industry. In other parts of the world, they've done a more effective job of doing that. They, they say in Canada, for instance, in the United Kingdom, you turn 65, you need a kidney transplant, you are sorry out of luck because it just doesn't happen. And the decisions are that easily made. And do you think that's the right system? I think that every government has to make its choice for the balances and trade-offs it has to make against the entire portfolio of spend that that government has. So it's hard to call into question without calling into question the ethos of a society, whether it's right or wrong. But I, but I will say this. I will say that... Um, but if it, you were whispering in the ear of President Obama, you would tell him what? I would tell him that, Mr. President, there's a fundamental conversation that we're not having in this country. 
and the conversation that we're not having in this country is there is a price that we pay for the ethos we so deeply hold true, and that is the access to health <clears throat> and the right to health care. And if we start with that premise, then there are certain things that we have to accept. So work backwards from that. Mm -hmm. Work backwards from that as, the, as, the, as what really operates. It's almost as a law of physics in this country. And if we work backwards and we say, well, if that's the, if that's the holy grail for every American citizen, just like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and access to health care. Mm -hmm. Well, have we decided that that's the case? I, I think we have. I think we have implicitly. Now, how we go about it is a different matter. And we can have lots of good partisan debate on both sides about how we do that. But I think every American accepts that if you live in this country, you should have access to health care. Why is it so expensive? I think it's because we haven't fully brought together the efficiencies and the technologies that we have. And what I mean by that is we've made such rapid advance. Take my story about myeloma mm -hmm. survival over the last 10 to 12 years. We've had such rapid advance with the therapies that can actually do that and the technologies, and we're sitting on the frontier of precision medicine, mm -hmm. of biomarkers, things that will actually allow us to target therapies, pardon me, that it's a little bit like the consumer electronics business in a way, right? Everything's ultimately expensive there. The very first MP3 player cost what? I, I don't know, four or five hundred dollars? Right. Mm -hmm. Now you can access a, a little iPod Nano for fifty dollars, seventy dollars. So we haven't quite figured out both how to drive down the cost of technology and the R&D associated with it and improve the productivity in the system. The treatments that you sell here in the U.S. cost how much abroad in Canada, in the U.K., elsewhere? So the therapy we have uh, on the market today is, is uh, Nexavar, and it's used to treat liver and kidney cancer. Uh, liver cancer is unfortunately one of those other cancers that's uniformly fatal. And uh, Nexavar in this country costs about $7,000 per month. Now, uh, we do this in conjunction with Bayer Pharmaceuticals around the world, and it's about that price everywhere in the world. So it has, so, it's, so there is no difference. No, one of the big issues is very little difference. in the pharmaceutical industry more broadly is that we here in the U.S. are paying or subsidizing everybody else. So I think that's true. I think that is true. Uh, I think that's true, but, it's, but in a way it's also true in some other sectors as well. It's true for technology. Right. America leads in high tech where to the extent that we provide tax credits and incentives, we're subsidizing the tech industry. So why is biotechnology and why are biopharmaceuticals very different? Now, I'll, I'll share one thought with you. China, a really interesting market, and it's on the lips of everyone these days. But China, the cost of Nexavar, this one therapy, is, as I've said, approximately the same. And China's interesting because China is responsible for 60% of the world's cases of liver cancer. 60%. Now, why is that? Well, hepatitis turns out to be the precursor for liver cancer. And in China, which today has the third highest utilization in the world of Nexavar, there's no reimbursement. Families pay out of their pocket to access Nexavar. It's really, really remarkable. So there's something in the equation about both that access to health care mm -hmm. and the willingness to pay 
in this case, really, literally for months, because liver cancer is such a deadly disease, that families rally and have actually caused, created the third highest utilization for Nexavar on a country basis. The Affordable Care Act, good, bad, where are you? The Affordable Care Act is, uh, is important. We, we have always believed in access to health care for all Americans, and, and long before the debate really started. Um, it, I think it's, I'm a physician, I'm the father of a cancer survivor. I, it'd be unconscionable for me to imagine in a, a country that I live in where Americans couldn't access health care. I think there, the Affordable Care Act goes a long way towards what needs to be done. I think there are some things that need to be examined in addition to what's, what the Supreme Court has just upheld. Like? Well, I think, I think we have to take a, a good look at medical mal malpractice. I think that that's an area that's ripe for reform. And it's ripe for reform because so many physicians practice defensive medicine. So their, the, 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 the prescriptions, the cost of diagnostic tests are all part of this, I'm so afraid of being sued by a patient that I'm going to go the extra mile. And I think there's inefficiency and waste in those decisions. How much additional cost do you think that adds? Oh, there's I, been lots of studies. Some have suggested that it's a lot. Some suggest it's, it's actually only on the margins. Yeah, I, I don't think I can get a, put a dollar figure on it. And I think it does vary uh, a bit. The, the problem is, is that how we want to incent the decision making in our healthcare system, particularly when we've got these big challenges, defense spending and, and some of the entitlement programs. Right. We've got huge challenges. So do we want that driving the decision-making when what we really need to do is ring out productivity improvements and spend? When you think about health care insurance, medical insurance, do you want people paying more out-of-pocket than they do today? It's a big debate in terms of how it would incentivize and change the environment. So this is part of the conversation that I've just whispered in the president's ear, mm -hmm. the conversation around ethos. Because if we're going to have that conversation and make that assumption, then there's a personal accountability part to this as well. And I think that we should decide what we're comfortable with as a society. But yes, I think that there should be some personal accountability for How would you structure your it? own health care. I like a lot of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, to be honest. I, I like the notion of the competitive market forces driving price in the exchanges. I like that as a convenient vehicle for providing care to the currently uninsured or underinsured uh, I think that goes a long way. I think there's a lot to be said. I love the fact that my kids, when they turn uh, 21 or graduate college, can stay on my insurance policy. I love that because Andrew, the oldest son, the, the, the cancer survivor, graduated 2009 from, from Harvard, and the day after he graduated, the day after, $700 a month that we had to pay to right. cover him. $700 a month, and we had to carry him for a year until he found employment. It's almost $5,000 in supplemental insurance. Is his insurance today cost more? His insurance today costs more than it cost us. No, no, g g given his prior treatment. You know, I would, I would dare say it probably did. I would dare say that that $700 was reflective of the, pr the prior condition he had. And I love the fact that we've eliminated prior condition as an exclusion uh, in the Affordable Care Act. So there's a lot to like about the Affordable Care Act. Let's talk about innovation in the pharmaceutical industry, but let's talk also about some policy issues. Uh, you've just lived with the FDA for the past decade trying to get this drug through. Um, grade the FDA in how they're, they're doing this. 
Well, given that the commissioner you just, you just is sitting won. here, <laughs> no, you, just, you just you just won, but it took you ten years. Well, uh, given, given that uh, the commissioner is right on the front row, I know. Um, we're going to. I will answer. Uh, I'll answer this way, and this this is an honest and, and it's a true answer, and it's actually something I reflected to to Dr. Hamburg yesterday. Um, the decision the advisory committee made two weeks ago, 11 to 0, to unanimously support the approval of Carprolis was one of the most wonderful decisions, not because it was a therapy we care about, but because of the way the FDA approached it. Now, you, you've got to follow the arc of what's happened in this country with drug regulation. So just give me a few seconds to okay. do that, because I think, I think that's really important in the context. The FDA has a really challenging job, and uh, Peggy, I don't, I don't mean to do this for you, but they've got a really challenging job, and that job is to provide and promote the safety and the health of Americans through medical devices and therapies that come, that come to market. That's a tough job because how can you foresee anything when you scale the utilization from the clinic to the population of the entire country? And it's hard to predict. You get some signs, but it's really hard to predict. So it's an easy job to screw up, to be honest. And the agencies come under such, such uh, criticism as a result of uh, Vioxx, for instance, mm -hmm. take that as, a, as an example, but that I think created a sea change and that pendulum swung to one end where safety became the most important order of the day. With last week's decision, and this isn't just Tony Coles, these are people who are observers of the agency and this industry, they're saying the pendulum is now returning to that balance between efficacy and safety and doing everything to hold the mission of the FDA true, which is to promote and enhance the health of Americans while keeping them safe. So I have to tell you, I think this is a new FDA, and I'll, I'll, I'll stand anywhere and I'll say that because when I watched the collaboration that happened between our company and the FDA, science-based, data-based, as rigorous as you'd want it to be, but it was collaborative nonetheless in the end, and I think the decision the advisory committee made was right for patients. So many of your peers have come on Squawk Box with me, and they don't take the same, I mean, she's here, so this is a harder conversation to have probably, but uh, they don't necessarily take the same approach. They have been very critical. They talk about innovation being stifled. They talk about the additional costs um, and the burden on the system. They talk about one of the reasons the drug costs cost so much. What do you tell them? I, I assume you guys have conversations, and you, oh, you've heard this a lot. Oh, sure, sure. Pretend she's not here. Sure, sure. <laughs> So what I tell them, I tell them actually the exact same thing. Now, before the last year or so, I think there was some valid criticism of, of the FDA. And, uh, and I've said this before, and I think, that, I think that what Vioxx did to this country in terms of really focus it, focus, forcing that pendulum to one end was really unfortunate, really unfortunate. But I'm not sure that the agency in any, in any normal sense had an other choice. Now, we can always argue that, well, swing the pendulum back faster and further than, than you ordinarily might. And that was my criticism of the way the FDA prosecuted its job over the last decade or so. But what I've noticed in the last, I'll call it the last one to one and a half years or so, uh, is a different tone around innovation, a different tone around the use of biomarkers to make personalized uh, medicine or precision medicine easier and more accessible, and an openness and a willingness to embrace 
both the industry, academia, and other stakeholders in a conversation about how we move that pendulum back. So again, this has been an arc, and to judge the agency unfairly today in a snapshot isn't the right thing to do. You have to look over the arc. When you look at the various treatments that are on the horizon uh, for cancer, broadly speaking, are you surprised at either how far we've gotten or, frankly, how far we have not? And I ask that, and I suggest it only because I, I, I think back 10 years and people, oh, every, every, everything has a 10-year horizon. People say in 10 years, X is going to happen. And given the amount of money that we have uh, spent on research and development, some people suggest that we have not gotten far enough. And that, that's a glass half empty approach. Yeah. You may have a glass half full. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a half full guy by nature. So I will tell you that we've actually made a lot of progress. So think about this as a paradigm. Think about the pharmaceutical industry of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was all about big blockbusters for chronic diseases, mm -hmm. hypertension, diabetes, psychiatric disorders, all those things. The really smart pharmaceutical companies figured out within the last decade that what you actually need to do is find new opportunities in specialty categories. So mm -hmm. take central nervous system disorders, for instance, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, which are really big areas of focus for pharmaceutical companies. But I'll argue that the, the greatest progress is being made and the future of the, of, the, of the biopharma model, business model, is going to be found in targeted therapies, where we have a number today, more than a dozen, and in precision medicine beyond targeted therapies. So think about this for a moment. In the 1990s, there was a, 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 an innovative therapy introduced called rituxan. It's a cancer therapy. Novel because what it does is it targets lymphoma cells that have a particular uh, cell marker on, on their surface, CD20. And it actually is quite effective and is now the standard of care there. So that's targeted therapy. It may not be precision medicine, right, in terms of the customized, you know, mm -hmm. thought about personalized medicine. And we've had conversations here about that. But that's targeted therapy. Well, that spawned Herceptin for breast cancer, where I will tell you that in the last five years, the mortality from breast cancer has actually gone down. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the statistics that, that we're most proud of in the industry because we helped to drive that. We know it wasn't surgery alone. It was the advent of targeted therapies like Herceptin. So I'll tell you that we've made a lot of progress, but in this paradigm, in transitioning from specialty therapies to targeted therapies to personalized or precision medicine, we still have a lot of ways to go, mostly because we don't understand the human body at that level sufficiently. Okay, give everybody in this room a little bit of hope. Give me three new technologies, drugs on the horizon that are not Onyx. Not Kyprolis. Nope. That you're excited about, that you think could change the world, as you said. Well, I think uh, there's a new therapy called TDM1. It's another cancer therapy. And it's uh, related to Herceptin, the breast cancer therapy that we just talked about, that is, uh, actually acts, if you can believe it, in an even more targeted fashion than Herceptin does. So that uh, is something that will be coming before uh, the FDA very shortly and in the FDA's consideration. And I think that that's, uh, that's a potential breakthrough. I think that there are breakthrough opportunities. If, if we Let's stick with cancer for a moment. Okay. Because cancer represents, I think, the greatest... Um, um, mashup, if you will, of uh, personalized uh, medicine, precision medicine, and targeted therapies. But I think this whole area of immune-based therapies is, is something that holds a lot of promise. 
Lots of cancers have uh, an immune-mediated uh, component to them, meaning that uh, there are effective uh, anti-immune uh, anti uh, therapies that you can use. Uh, melanoma has long been thought to be one of those, mm -hmm. for instance. So I think what's happening with um, uh, Seattle Genetics and what's happening with uh, companies like Dendrion that are using immune-based therapies really do hold a lot of promise because if you can cause the cancer cell itself to die, which is the goal for all chemotherapy and even targeted therapies, and if you can actually stimulate the body's immune response to those cancer cells, you're almost getting a twofer. So that whole area of immune-based therapies... How far off are we? I think we have uh, one or two on the market uh, today. I think we have a lot, of, lot to learn about those because, again, it's back to the biology. We so don't 10 years? Do we wait 10 years and see? Ooh, ooh. I, I would hope that in 10 years we've made much more progress. And hopefully in 10 years we have for immune-based therapies what we have for targeted therapies today, which is in excess of a dozen therapies. That, that would be my hope. Right. Points um, to the important need of funding the academy. I got two quick questions, and I want to try to open up to the audience and create a conversation. When you think now, as a CEO, as a businessman, um, about investing in new drugs, walk us just through the process. Um, how, how does it work? Who comes to you? Who do you go to? In this day and age, in, in an age where it's no longer the big pharmaceutical companies that are owning the business. So uh, let's assume, for instance, that uh, there's a therapy that uh, we, we see on the market. It's not our therapy, but we would like to own it. Let's take that example because that's the, that's the true example for our particular company. We don't do in-house discovery. Um, and uh, it, it's unfortunate, but it was a, one of those hard trade-off decisions we had to make when the company was running out of money. Do you think in-house discovery ago. works, by the way? I actually think that not, not all in-house discovery because I do think you can be really smart uh, about it. I think there are uh, inefficiencies in the way that we do it, as evidenced by the notion that we're spending almost $50 billion globally in research and development in this industry, this industry alone. And we've had the conversation about approvals, but we've watched the number of new chemical entities drop precipitously since the 1990s. So that innovation gap right there, right, the costs have gone up, the number of new therapies have come down. This gap tells you that we're not doing something right. So we have a new opportunity. Now, we've chosen for, for economic reasons 10 years ago when the company was running out of cash not to do in-house discovery. And the reason I like that model is that it actually allows us to survey the landscape to identify where a portion of the risk in the development of a therapy has already been worked out or eliminated, exchange value for that company because they should, they should receive value for the innovation, and then take that on but at a lower risk. So that's a smart business model from our perspective because we're able then to pay them additional monies as we have mm -hmm. success. And that's worked very well. That's actually how we came by Kyprolis. We acquired a company, uh, exchanged money, uh, and gave the, gave the investors and the innovators in that company uh, a, a very appropriate payout, but they'll get even more as Kyprolis succeeds. And so that's a wonderful premise. Uh, for how you can actually construct a business where you don't have internal discovery, which I think is fraught with a lot of challenge today. Okay, final question, then we'll open it up. Uh, I, I don't need to tell you that you are a takeover target now. Um, big Pharma would love to buy you, or at least that's the word on the street. And I'm curious whether, and it goes to the earlier question, whether you think Big Pharma works, meaning whether the, the old model 
Um, and when you think about all the money that Big Pharma is spending on research and development, and ultimately what they end up doing is buying companies like yours as opposed to finding the next breakthroughs. That seems to be the trend. And your question? <laughs> your comment. <laughs> I, think, um, I think it's true that the pharmaceutical industry, let, let me answer the first part, which is really, you know, is the pharmaceutical model broken? The answer is yes. And we've known this for the last decade, at least I knew it a decade ago, which is why I moved to the biotech industry. So we've used these terms interchangeably, but they're, they're radically different. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, they're chemical companies that identify chemicals for health. Biotech companies, by and large, have used biology-based means to actually arrive at new therapies. The ideal marriage is obviously where the two would come together because we still need chemistry solutions for biological problems. But that, that fundamental difference and the ways that they've actually had to discover drugs, I think, doesn't work anymore. And certainly not at the scale that we need and the efficiency that we need. I think it's possible to actually turn around a pharmaceutical company, but I think it requires such a sea change in thinking that you're, you're really trying to move the Titanic or the Lusitania around on a dime. And these, these are companies that are 50,000, 60,000 people. And what's really required is the deconstruction of that company to its essence, and then a revisiting of these basic issues of precision medicine and targeted therapies. Okay, then final, final. Is there any advantage for your company to be owned by a larger one in this day and age? You know, given I that answer. Yeah, I would argue that we can do what we do better by remaining independent. The, the agility we are, at the end of this year, will be 700 employees. So it's, it's much more effective. We were 134 years ago. So not only are we creating jobs for the economy, which is important, but our ability to be agile, to be nimble, all the important decisions happen in one right. place. They, they happen at my desk. And, and I'm always around. So, and I'm really clear about where we need to be heading because what we haven't talked about is what I'd call conscience-centered leadership or principle-based leadership. And this is the one great lesson I learned from Roy. Always do the right thing. And I think that gets lost sometimes in a big corporation. The interests are varied and multiple, and I think there's a lot that needs to be deconstructed about the pharmaceutical industry. I think the biotech has its own set of problems, but I think we are moving in the right direction. Okay, let's open it up. Thank you for this. Let's open it up. Uh, I know we've got a lot of questions. Uh, we'll go here uh, in the front, please, first. Hi, I'm Grace Bender, and I did not know about your multiple myeloma drug. I'm thrilled to hear it because my brother has just had his second bone marrow transplant and mm. is in remission. Um, do you have any clinical trials going where someone is in remission? Because they know he'll come out again, um, where he could take this drug. And, and what is the longest? Um, amount of time someone has lived having not had any bone marrow transplants, just using the drug? So we, we do have some uh, trials. They're happening uh, on a smaller scale by independent investigators, but we can, we can follow up a little bit more, uh, more offline and I can, okay. I, I can give you some more information. But we're very interested in looking at patients who've had transplants and trying to understand whether we can extend their remission period if they take Kyprolis in addition to having had a transplant. 
Longest? I, I don't. I don't know the the answer to the longest uh, uh, survival. Uh, if you haven't had a transplant just with drugs, but I will tell you, I, you know, it's it's eight to ten years uh, on a, on a good day, uh, and that's a far improvement over the two years of survival ten years ago. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Good question over here, sir. Eric Tovall, Scripps, Tony, I've known you many years, we've yeah. been friends. I wanted to just uh, ask you a little bit more about your perspective. Uh, one of the problems you've touched on, uh, in a way, tangentially, and certainly Andrew has, about the high cost of these drugs, uh, and then you've been talking about precision medicine. So what I want to know is, in your development of this drug, did you leverage the opportunity of doing uh, genomics on the plasma cells? Did you do anything that you could segment the efficacy of this drug, whereas all the other 13, 12 other therapies in multimodal have done nothing in that regard? And this is an opportunity. Uh, so has there been anything done with the, will, if this drug is approved, is there anything that's going to be, be put in the label that's going to uh, be more intelligent use of this high-priced drug? And then I have a second part to the question, if, if I can. Okay, so so we've looked, uh, Eric. We, we've really tried to look, but we can't identify any any relevant biomarkers that would predict efficacy or or safety or, or outcome. What's interesting, though, and I'm glad you asked the question. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk to is our belief in in partnerships in public and private, in not for profit and and private or not for profit governmental, every every dimension of that matrix. And the reason this is important is we have actually just funded the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, which is an independent not-for-profit organization. And we funded them actually to take a collection of 1,000 patients, which is a good number for an incidence, an annual incidence of 20,000. 1,000 patients. These 1,000 patients will get the treatments that their doctors prescribe for them, but will get their genetic and molecular information. And so while Onyx has not, in its slice of this, been able to identify anything, what we're hoping is that across this broader population of 1,000 patients, with all of the therapies, that we'll be able to actually begin to track the presence of biomarkers that can predict improved outcome or efficacy. Now, it's a wonderful idea because we're doing it collaboratively with the other myeloma companies. So, you know, we, we're intense competitors all over the place. But this is the one pre-competitive opportunity we have to actually get at the heart of what you're saying. And we so strongly believe that this information is important that we were one of the first to sign up to do this. Well, that's encouraging <coughs> overall. I've been concerned there hasn't been enough aggressive effort <coughs> in the science behind uh, identifying where the drugs work or, or not. The other part of the question is uh, regarding costs. And not just, I mean, the paradox of, of the cost of, uh, insurance for your son, $700 a month versus a drug, $7,000 a month. But it's really concerning that the whole industry, life science industry, is migrating to, for example, cancer biologics because they are, the, the routine cost is so high, $100,000 or more. Yesterday we were talking about Salatico, which is $294,000 a year. Uh, so this is just breaking the backs. Uh, and I wonder your perspective is how can this be sustained, these high-cost drugs? What can be done to bring them down outside of the precision medicine uh, possibility? Well, I, I think one of the things that will help will be our, our, the improvement in our understanding from things like this multi-myeloma research collaboration, for instance. 
So if we have a much better understanding, I don't, I don't accept the simple notion that prices will continue to rise and rise and rise over time no matter what. I actually do think that as we learn more about, um, call them individual patient gene signatures or uh, the genome of a particular patient, um, we can actually find more efficient ways to develop these therapies. And I think that efficiency can, can begin to push against this $1 billion estimate that I've given. And if this is a return on investment business model, which as a business it has to be, then I think that there's an opportunity for some slack in all of that as we learn more about the genome and relevant therapies that are, that are most efficacious, as we decrease development costs, as we work with the agency, for instance, to actually shorten the time through which we have to answer these important questions. Because if you've got an enriched population with a genome signature, hopefully you can actually get to an answer much, much faster than we've been able to today. All of those things will actually impact the cost. We have another question right over here uh, in between. What is your um, return on investment threshold? Uh, it, <laughs> uh, we actually don't disclose it. Um, uh, and it's because it's not relevant for us in all instances because we actually look at the need in a particular marketplace. This is another thing that actually my experience at Merck uh, taught me, and this will sound like mother at an apple pie, but it is how my judgment is informed. And I, I remind the employees at Onyx about this all but the time. But somebody's putting together a spreadsheet saying if we invest X, we're going to get Y. That has to be done, right? It, it, so, we're, we're so what, so <clears throat> what is that baseline for you? Well, let me finish my, my George Merck story. Okay. So, so the, the first few months of coming to Merck, you learn about George Merck, who was a founder. And George Merck gave an impassioned speech in the 19th century. And what he said is, if we put the patients first, the profits will follow. Okay, we will leave it there. Yes, sir. Tony, it's great to see you again. Hi, Chris. I just want to first off thank Robin and you for your leadership when uh, we, five or six military officers, came to Bristol-Myers Squibb as corporate associates, and you were a wonderful leader then. You're a wonderful leader now, and just want to thank you for that personally. Uh, my question about venture uh, capital and life sciences, I was wondering if you, if the dollars are still there, uh, like they were 10, maybe 15 years ago, or have you seen a drop in terms of the amount of life sciences venture out there. And then number two, where are the venture life sciences dollars going these days? Uh, other than Onyx, of course. Yeah. Where, where are the venture dollars that are going in the life sciences? So we, we have seen a decline in, uh, in the amount of venture funding that's been put to work. And it's, uh, there are probably venture capitalists in the audience. It's been more difficult for venture capitalists to raise funds, uh, quite, quite honestly, because of, uh, of all the dimensions that we've talked about, not the least of which is the global economic condition which for the first time has been a macro environmental condition that's affected this industry. We've been largely impervious to those kinds of things, except for the last four or five years. So it's made the equations that created success in the 90s and the early 2000s more difficult to follow these days. And we are seeing a, a, a decline and a fall off. Where are the dollars going now? Many of the dollars are actually going into targeted therapies and to, into personalized medicine. Interestingly enough, there's a burgeoning new field that is trying to pair targeted therapies and precision medicine with healthcare IT. And so if you think about that as the next frontier for what happens and unfolds in the next decade, all the information that Eric's asking about has to be assimilated and, and in some format that's coherent, provided to the provider or the decision maker and or the patient who increasingly is making the decisions to make a therapeutic choice. So there's, an, a, there's a concentration of interest 
in the healthcare IT space, everything from electronic medical records to diagnostic assays, et cetera, and how that gets used with uh, targeted therapies. Okay, I think we've got about two minutes left. Why don't we try to sneak in? Uh, we could try to go rapid fire and sneak in two questions if we could. If you go very fast, sir, we will, uh, we will try to do that. Uh, my name is Don Flax. In 1949, 1949, I was a sophomore in Bronx High School of Science in New York, and we made a field trip to Sloan Kettering. In 1949, if you had a portable radio, you'd probably be lucky if you got clear uh, AM radio station. Today, with the proper equipment sitting here or sitting in automobile, you can make a phone call around the world. You can make a television phone call to people. You can get driving instructions. You can watch 300 television stations. My question is, are you convinced that this extraordinary power, electronic invisible power, is not contributing to cancer? So I think, it's, I think it's unknown. I think there have been hypotheses about, and for instance, cell phones and the incidence of, uh, of cancer. Uh, there's got to be something to that. We talked yesterday a lot about uh, the various causes for disease, environmental, lifestyle, uh, and uh, et cetera. So it, it wouldn't be surprising if, it, if there weren't some correlation, but I think the data are still very thin. Do you put the cell phone to your head? I actually use a headpiece. Bluetooth or wire? Bluetooth. Okay. Let's, uh, let's sneak in the last, last, we will do a really rapid fire and we'll sneak it right in. I, um, uh, my name is Amir Levine, I'm um, um, a neuroscientist at Columbia, but I'm also a physician and I remember when I was a medical student seeing actually a multiple myeloma patient sneeze and actually broke both of her hips because of that. And so it's, it's great to have these medications. But my concern is that there's more of an incentive to turn conditions into chronic diseases, rather there might be, rather than finding a cure, because if the profit is the bottom line, so there might be, it might be more profitable to do that. So that's what I wanted to So we, right we disconnect, I'll, I'll disconnect that for you uh, right here. Uh, as a physician, I can tell you, I have no interest, no interest in whatsoever in not curing a disease that's within our means to cure just on a profit basis. I, I, can, I can tell you right now definitively that Onyx as a company would never do that. If we've got a cure within our grasp, we will bring that therapy to market and will not uh, circumvent anything for profit motive. We just won't do that. It's not the right thing. It's unconscionable. And I couldn't live with myself as the father of a cancer survivor if I did that. But, not, okay. but even if you don't have that, but let's say in terms of the thinking about t the research that you would do, would it be more profitable to look for solutions that will create a more chronic condition. I guess I mean, it sounds unconscionable, but at the end of the day, if the dollar is, if the profit is the bottom line, it would make sense. Well, I'd say not in any company that I would ever run or want to be with. Okay, we're going to leave the conversation there. I want to thank you, Tony, for a tremendous oh, conversation and the important great. work that thank you do you. every single day. Thank, thank you. you very much. And thank you for some wonderful questions. Have a wonderful day this afternoon.